0: Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime.
1: I'm Nick, and I am not a fan.
0: Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. Today, we're talking kidnappings murder the rockefeller dynasty uh you know what i don't really want to tell you very much because i know you don't know anything about this story Uh like some folks might it was a huge story about a decade ago Uh but you my nick (laughs) my love my my lovely guy i know you don't know anything about this yeah and you know what Uh uh-huh I'm not going to say anything else. Okay, okay? so no
1: little treasures leading us to the chest.
0: We'll put the details in the show notes for people who like to know what I'm going to talk about before I talk about Uh it. But for our intents and purposes of this podcast, I'm not going to give you any Easter eggs, dude. (laughs)
1: Okay, wow. Easter (laughs) has been canceled, children.
0: Yeah, go home for this episode. (laughs) Our main sources include... The 2008 long-form article for Vanity Fair, "The Man in the Rockefeller Suit" by Mark Seal, season one, episode eight of Blood and Money, called "Inventing a Rockefeller," and then reporting for Boston.com from Brian Balu, just his coverage during the murder trial and his interviews with the victims' families that are very interesting. There's like a bunch of really interesting looking documentaries for this, but they're all out of circulation. I couldn't get any of them. And the book I wanted to read was out of circulation as far as I could tell. So I had to piece this one together from little articles and TV episodes. So I think all that to say, I did find some contradicting information. Again, you know me. I just read stuff so I can tell it to Nick. I'm not a journalist. So <laughs> yeah, these yeah. are like, you know, I just found these things. So cool. I went with the most consistent version. The Vanity Fair article is really great. It's a super fun read if you're interested. So I would recommend that.
1: Cool. And we are going to be getting to that story shortly, but we have to take a few minutes so we can continue our simp parade for our (laughs) Patreon members. Big juicy love goes out to our newest members who signed up, unlocked exclusive episodes, and supported this DIY podcast. Megan and Angie, thank you so, so much. We also just got two of the most amazing reviews on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, we did. We read those and your words really Impact Us. The first was a five-star review from Dave, who says he bought an iPhone just just for the sole only one and only purpose to leave this review for Muriel's Murders. Quote, and this was a big, long review. It was so good. It was good. really it, amazing. It like, really
0: made my heart so This good. is just an
1: excerpt from this review. Quote, we love chatting about episodes after listening and get super soaked about road trips when we have a few MMs to look forward to. Y'all keep doing what you're doing. We love you. We appreciate all the hard work that goes into bringing these stories to us. And you rock. P.S. being able to easily leave an Apple review for this podcast. <laughs> (laughs) was a small but non-zero factor in my decision to swap from android to apple for real y'all did that boom i think that makes us influencers you know (laughs) helping that apple stock go up baby dave it really does mean the world to us that you and your lady tune in and dig what we do we can't express the joy it brings to us that you guys vibe out on the frequency thank you both so so much cheers may the love and the peace be with both of you
0: our second impactful, amazing review on Apple <laughs> came from Nick Getting in Trouble for talking about the Rolling Stones. Yep.
1: It's a one-star <laughs> review from username Why You Suck So Bad, titled <laughs> Pandering Waste of Time in regards to our episode Rock and Roll's <laughs> Worst Day and the Killing of Meredith
0: Hunter. Which I thought was a great episode.
1: I, they listened to the whole thing, I think. <laughs> they did. Because they quoted me for saying something at the very end of the episode, but just everyone, don't worry. This review was directed at me and written personally to me, like a letter to me, as opposed to a review for other people to maybe be interested or not interested in the. Pod. This was to me; It had nothing to do with Muriel. So everyone can just like rest assured: this was not an attack on Muriel; it was fully on me. It I was really very good. It was. Scary it was. It was, to me. It was <laughs> Uh, I really do want to preface uh, this, I guess, whatever, by saying I was a genuine idiot for talking trash about the Rolling Stones last episode. Obviously, they're legendary kings and I'm an uh, unaccomplished no one. I kind of thought that was like uh, part of the package when you sign up for this podcast is like, yeah, they, they just sit in there. In their apartment because like their dreams didn't come true, kind of people, but whatever. I just thought talking trash about the Rolling Stones was kind of being like, man, I hate it when it's windy. It's like, well, without wind, you couldn't populate the world. You know what I'm saying? Like, the Rolling Stones just seem so big. Like, I just figured it wouldn't matter. Nonetheless, I was ignorant and dismissive. And I'm definitely not trying to rain on anyone's parade. Like, I would never want anyone to feel bad or think that I think they're dumb for liking something we all like shit you know know what I mean we all like things and do things whatever anyways before um, this (laughs) review came in I was feeling so dumb for being dismissive about the rolling stones and i'm sure lots of you thought i was stupid which i was we're family and you are right to think ignorance slips through these sexy sexy mustache and beard um surrounded lips from time to time i'll always feel bad when i'm dismissive or derisive of something or someone beloved it also seems like they've listened to a fair amount of episodes which to me makes us family (laughs) why you suck so bad which is funny because I know that's like the name they wrote to say to me. But yeah, if right. I say it back to them, then you're, you know what I'm saying? It's why you cathartic. suck so bad. You know, it goes like, <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those things. Anyways, uh, you you're, you listen, baby. We're family. So, of course, we will mirror each other's stupidity. May the peace and love be with you.
0: I also wanted to say I was dying because Nick has, <laughs> we have this like running joke. Yeah. Where for some reason, I, I'll go on this tangent where I talk shit about 50 cents. <laughs>
1: I don't want him to hear it.
0: I know, but it's just ridiculous. Like, like it's so insane. He's edited me out talking. I just make fun of him for the Candy Shop song because I Uh think it's a terrible song. Nick has edited me out of this podcast talking shit on 50 Cent like three different times. He's like, it's really inappropriate. And I heard him going on this rant on... The Rolling Stones, and I was literally side eyeing him. I would normally like stop it and be uh-huh. like, "Dude, just let it go." You know, yeah, right. Do that. Yeah, but yeah. I was like, you know, you don't, uh, go ahead, man. <laughs> I was even sitting here because we have arguments like this. Yeah. Where he'll go on, you'll go hard on something, and I was like, "You like the Rolling
1: Stones? <laughs> I do. The Rolling Stones You're are on quite, our playlist. Great. Yeah, of course they are. <laughs> Whose playlists aren't they on? I thought. Anyways, whatever.
0: It was just something that I was like, "Go ahead, man, <laughs> dig your own grave." Yeah. Anyway, you suck so bad you know, in the review, went really hard in the pain. <laughs> if you want to read it, I think it's buried somewhere, but it's actually, it's pretty, it's pretty. I think it's the
1: second review. You can find it pretty easily. Yeah, it's
0: pretty sassy. So he called, <laughs> sorry, I'm like laughing. He called Nick a virtue signaling. <laughs> sorry, why do I keep laughing? He called Nick a virtue signaling clown who almost certainly rolls up his windows and clutches his purse at the sight of anyone in a shade darker than Ron Howard.
1: <laughs> Good reference, by the way, Ron Howard.
0: <laughs> and I'll have you know, yeah. I am a biracial lady. I'm half black and half white in real life. And Nick only rolls his windows up at me like half the time <laughs> I get up to the car. Only when I spook him. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we're all out of here saying yeah. dumb shit, you no, know? Yeah, yeah. And I'm about to say some more dumb shit. So, you know, I hope, I hope you're still rolling with us. You suck so bad. Yeah. You've been listening for a long time, and I wanted to say, awesome, man uh-huh. or lady, if you leave us a voicemail and it's funny, we might play it. That's right. I'll <laughs> put
1: the I'll put that phone number in the show notes of the episode. I yeah. like
0: people who are big man. It's nice. <laughs> All right, this story. <laughs> this is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So, if, if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, please consider. You know, just listening to a different podcast
1: and we'll probably do a little cursing and joking and maybe something will be incredibly offensive to you so if you're the type of person where you like listen to a podcast and someone says something and you're like i'm so mad i need to tell them how mad uh i am now maybe just turn us off or don't i don't don't, know yeah keep listening you know i don't uh, know i actually don't know yeah
0: breeds innovation i don't know whatever yeah all right nikki Are you ready to hear this story?
1: I don't even remember what it's about.
0: (laughs) Okay, let's get started. This story starts in San Marino, California in the mid-1980s. Even today, it's one of the most expensive cities in the United States. So uh, according to something on the internet, I think it's like, wikipedia the median (laughs) home price Uh in san marino is like three million dollars yeah
1: yeah
0: it's known as kind of more of an old money spot right it's about 10 miles east of la small elite botanical gardens private schools you Mm -hmm. get the deal back then it was said at the time You could divide the city into kind of three sections. You had Super Merino, that would be the houses on the hills in the center of town, the heavy upper million dollar mansions for like the magical wizards and the immortals, right? Mm -hmm. And then (laughs) Magical (laughs) wizards? (laughs) Just the very very rich. Okay. Okay.
1: (laughs) Wait, are they, it's like Illuminati stuff?
0: No, I mean, I always think that but I'm just okay. saying, you know, okay people that live a life that we don't know about. Gotcha. And then you had just regular plain old San Marino to the west, big houses for people who have money, but also, you know, maybe have to have jobs like being a doctor or whatever. Mm. Right. And then to the east is what tastefully sometimes people referred to as submarino. <laughs> so cheaper houses for working class folks, which in this world meant like of $300,000 houses in 1983, which mm-hmm. in today's money would be like a $900,000 house. Sure. So our story takes place in one of these t- cheapy submarino houses, a big, beautiful home with a sprawling yard and <laughs> <Yeah>. a generous <laughs> guest house in the back, where a young English baronet lived while studying film at the prestigious University of Southern California. USC. Gotcha. So this home belonged to a woman named Didi Soas in the nineteen forties and fifties. Dede was a popular socialite in San Marino, but by nineteen eighty three, she was just like embracing her inner Grey Gardens pretty hard. She was known mostly as a housebound, crabby alcoholic, mm-hmm. and aside from her. Fancy tenant in the back house. She lived alone until 1983 when her adopted son, John, and his new wife, Linda, moved in. So Jonathan Soas was short and chubby with this thick, curly hair. His friends described him as a Dungeons and Dragons freak. Okay. Uh, John worked at the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena. He was like a computers guy. And Linda was a six foot tall 200-pound, vivacious redhead. She was probably about a foot taller than John. She was a super talented fantasy painter. She was really into unicorns. And she worked at a local sci-fi bookstore and always carried her art portfolio with her.
1: Cool. Hell yeah. Yeah. So they're just doing their thing. They used to
0: go to D&D tournaments together, like having a ball, right? I'm a fan. Me too. They got married in a Halloween-themed wedding on <laughs> Halloween, 1983.
1: That, I feel like that that's before the time, too. Like, now that you can make that, like, chic. Like, back then, I feel like you were really being asked to be shunned for something you were like just, that. They
0: just were, like, living life. Right? Yeah, like, that's. Yeah. it was, like, hard
1: to be that back then, yeah, I think.
0: Yeah, people were just kind of like, yeah, they were total weirdos. <laughs>
1: yeah, but yeah. their
0: friends were saying that. Right. Yeah. yeah, of course.
1: And now it's just, like, it would be kind of weird if you didn't have a d Halloween-themed wedding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I get that. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So along with their four cats, uh, the couple moved in with Didi Soas and moved straight back in to John's childhood bedroom. Mm-hmm. And by all accounts, they were just a, a very happy, joyful couple. Kind of odd, but totally down with each other and really very comfortable just doing their thing. The only real snag was Didi could be... A handful. Linda told friends D.D. Dee Dee was just like this little bathrobe gremlin. She was very confrontational, very drunk, uh, puffing away like a chimney, chain smoking <laughs> cigarettes uh-huh. at all hours. Uh-huh. You know, and so because of that, living in the guest house would be totally ideal for her and John, mm-hmm. but it would just impossible, right? Dee Dee was completely taken by her young tenant, Christopher Chichester. He had come from England and just totally taken San Marino by storm. He was English, fancy blood, a baronet, which is like something between a knight and a baron. Okay, And he even had embossed Calling cards announcing his elevated status and <laughs> hand out to people. And you know, <laughs> San Marino. That does not
1: seem like a very royal thing to do. I gotta be it's honest. Right, it is. It's I guess is. I'm sure it is. I mean, I don't know anything about anything, but I just feel like it's one of those billionaires don't wear gold chains kind of thing. You know, I it's get like, that, yeah. oh, you have a business card, baronet.
0: I think it, it is. Like I'm sure
1: it is. I'm sure that it is. Well, but,
0: San Marino. Yeah. You know, this is like this place where like LA is new money, right? And Splashy And San Marino is very, you know, like old money and classy. And Uh so like, uh they're just so excited to have Uh a baronet. Right. And so they were so impressed with him. He was just at every party being like kind of ferried around by all of these like older ladies. Right. They were so impressed. They even like helped him put together a public access show called inside San Marino, where he was like, the star of it, and he would interview the upper crust
1: of the community. Like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Yeah,
0: in his, like, Queen's English, you know? So he would get all of them on the show and be like, well, yeah. what do you do with your day every day? Like, their own yeah, version yeah, yeah. of that, right? Beautiful. And like the rest of the town, Dee Dee was absolutely charmed by him. And it's unclear, but it's very likely Christopher also wasn't paying a dime of rent for the guest house. The Dee Dee was probably... Doing as the nobles did and not mm-hmm. discussing gross things like money. Sure. You know, taking cues from the charming baronet who was also known to never pick up a check. Sure. Know? Of course. Like the ultra wealthy.
1: Sure. Yeah. Sorry. And just to make sure I've got the store right. Yeah. yeah. Dee Dee owns this house. Her yeah. son is the D&D guy, John, and whose new wife is Linda. Yeah. And who's like the redhead painter. Yeah. Right. And then they're living inside the house. They don't want to live inside the house. They yeah. want to live in the guest house. But yeah. instead, there's this baronet living there. Exactly. And his name is Chris. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. They're kind of like a broke young couple. Sure. And they're living in his, you know, John's childhood bedroom. Right. Okay. His okay. mom's kind of a wild ass. Okay. And so they're like broke. They'd love to live in the guest house. But yeah. then there's this guy also living for free in the guest house. Sure. So there's this tension. In that okay, house.
1: great. Yeah. I got it.
0: And to add to the tension, you know, in this weird way, Christopher Chichester and Dee Dee's lives were really wrapped up together. So even though John, her son, lived at the house, Christopher Chichester handled the bills for the big house. He shopped for groceries. He was often like in the big house, like answering the phone and you know, he really often would throw these big parties in the in the backyard. And when he did, he would insinuate really that, like, the property belonged to him.
1: Okay, so I won't pay a bill, but all of this is mine and I handle the finances? Yeah,
0: and they would say, like, oh, is it okay if we go into the big house, for yeah. instance, to use the bathroom, yeah. right? And he'd be like, oh, yeah, go ahead. Right. You know, he, was, he would really assert a lot of control and ownership over totally. the house. The thing he didn't do was interact with Didi's Dee nerdy son and daughter-in-law. Mm-hmm. So they really had a very tense relationship. Like they didn't have the same type of friendship. He didn't make any effort to hang out with John and Linda, right? He, they were not upper crust. Right. They were out there painting unicorns. Like sure. He had no interest in forming a relationship with them. In February 1985, so about two years after this arrangement started, Linda and John were just living life. You know, they had bought a new truck, a white Nissan pickup truck, and had made plans to go to a sci fi convention with friends. And then, out of nowhere, they get this mysterious job opportunity, a, a dream job for John. And they told family and friends they were going to New York so John could interview for this high-level, high-security government computer job. And this is a little hazy, but at some point, it sounds like Linda let it slip to a close friend that actually they weren't going to interview. They had both been recruited already and hired, and they were actually going to report for duty at some top-secret U.S.-run satellite development company in New York city, like something just very top secret, Mm -hmm. but you know, they were going to report to duty, but they were going to be back to pack the rest of their things in two weeks and and say their goodbyes. Anyway, it was kind of confusing, a lot of information floating around, but the general consensus was they would be gone for a week or so and then be back in time for the sci-fi convention and to pick up their cats. So, John and Linda boarded their cats and left for New York City. And they never came back. As the weeks ticked by, Linda's family and friends, you know, they started talking to each other, trying to piece together what actually was going on. Some of her friends think... Oh, well, they said they have the jobs and maybe that just got pushed back and like Mm -hmm. it's top secret either way. So maybe they aren't able to connect with us and like they're starting to piece together. Okay. What did they say they were coming back? What's going on? Right. No one had picked up the cats and the boarding house was calling around saying, you know, the cats have been abandoned. That's really uncharacteristic for them. Right. Yeah. And all their stuff is still at Dee's. you know, all Mm -hmm. of the things that were really important to them. And, the art
1: portfolio. Yeah. I don't care how secret the mission is. You bring your passion with you. you right. Know?
0: Exactly. And, you know, when they are calling Dee, she's just hammered. She's really unhelpful. Mm. They can't get her to give them any information. And eventually, Dee kind of says something like, the kids are gone. And I don't know if they're ever coming back because they've gone to Europe. And the only person who can contact them on their top secret mission is this mysterious high powered person who got them the job in the first place, and that would be the baronet living in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> so Linda's family's like, "All right then, we're calling the police."
1: Good, right. good, okay. good, good.
0: So finally, after two months, two after months, John wow. and Linda went missing. Yeah, yeah. Linda's family finally filed a missing persons report. So police speak with Didi, and of course, decided to interview Christopher Chichester. Yeah so investigators go to Submarino to Dee Dee's house they go through the yard and up to the guest house and notice first and foremost that John and Linda's brand new pickup truck is now parked in the baronet's parking space and they knock on the door and the baronet opens the door and he's buck ass naked Mm -hmm. and he's sweaty and he's dirty, as in unwashed. But also, like, he's been gardening. Like, he's covered in dirt.
1: Like, burying bodies? Two months ago? The baby gun gone for two months.
0: No, it's just, it's just okay. weird. It's just okay. weird. Okay, okay. Right? And it's the 80s, and it's California. So the nudist thing is not, like, totally out <laughs> of left field. Uh-huh. You know, it's, uh, like... <laughs> Like the cop was in this documentary, it's like describing like, oh god, it's like annoying. But usually people will cover up, <laughs> yeah. you know. And he's just like, uh, right. <laughs> yeah. and so he, he's like, okay, can you just put on a robe? Yeah. And Chichester says, it's absolutely not. This is my lifestyle. I'm a uh, nudist. Okay. Like, well, okay. Like everybody else. Uh, and so I'm sure this poor man sighs the deepest of sighs, <laughs> and he goes inside the guest house to do his 20 minute interview. Yeah. And all Chichester would say was like, yeah, man, I heard they were going to work on satellites in New York with the government, but that was two months ago. That's Mm -hmm. crazy, right? And the officer checked his ID and saw Chichester's California driver's license had two names printed on it. Christopher Chichester, without the BT indicating his title of baronet, Mm -hmm. which kind of... maybe should have been there mm-hmm. and then a german name christian Karl Gerhardt's writer. so that's odd right and then not only did you know this guy do the entire interview naked chichester completely dropped his british accent i was
1: interview. wondering because even this, what you're saying he's saying i can't imagine this fancy british those words coming out of his mouth
0: It's all very strange, Uh uh like really strange, but absolutely nothing arrestable. Sure. Right. So in April, a friend of Linda's and Linda's mother got identical postcards from Linda, postmarked from Paris, France. They were in her handwriting and they simply read, kind of miss New York. Oops. But this can be lived with John and Linda. That's it. And it kind of lent some credibility to Dee Dee's story, kind of. Uh-huh. But the messages sound nothing like Linda, who would have written just paragraphs and paragraphs. She's sure. a really effusive person. Sure. And Linda's mother was positive also that Linda had never owned a passport. So it seemed just so bizarre to her that she could even be in Paris at mm-hmm. that moment. Time goes by. Months go by. And then in the summer, in, I believe, July... Didi Soas called police in an absolute panic. Christopher Chichester, the only contact Didi had with her son, had moved out of the guest house abruptly without a forwarding address. He had just disappeared and he'd left in John's pickup truck. Nearly six months after her son had vanished, Didi wanted to file a missing persons report because now, She had no way of getting in contact with him, Uh and Christopher Chichester was just gone. The baronet had told friends around town different stories. Most of them heard he had to go visit a dying relative, but regardless, he was gone, and he was never seen in San Marino again. Didi Soas lapsed into heavy drinking after that. She stopped changing her clothes or leaving the house Her San Marino house fell apart and she eventually sold it and moved into a trailer park where she died alone in February 1988. And John and Linda's case remained cold and the baronet disappeared into thin air.
1: And they never did like, okay, we should look for bodies or anything. There was never a search. They never looked for them. No. Okay. All right.
0: 20 years later, though... Across the country in Boston, Massachusetts, the Baronet reemerged. On a sunny day in July 2008, he stepped out of the Algonquin Club, one of Boston's oldest and most exclusive members only clubs where he had been living temporarily. The Baronet, of course, was older, balding. He looked more like Niles Crane from Frazier with, like, Elvis Costello glasses. Mm -hmm. And today he had on khakis and a blue polo shirt, and he carried his seven-year-old daughter, Ray Storo Mills Boss, on his shoulders. Oh, he's
1: a dad now. Okay.
0: On this daddy-daughter day, they were headed to the Boston Commons to ride the swan boats. A social worker trailed just a short distance behind them, monitoring the entire interaction. As the odd trio walked down tree-lined streets with houses belonging to Kennedys and US senators, a black SUV limousine pulled up to the curb. The baronet calmly set his daughter down, turned and gave the social worker a hard shove, knocking him down. He opened the door to the waiting SUV and yanked his daughter inside, knocking her head against the doorframe in the process. Oh, come
1: the on. The driver man.
0: took off with the social worker still clinging to the door handle, dragging him along for several feet until eventually he just fell violently into the street. The baronet had paid the driver $3,000 earlier for the ride, and explain to the driver that they might have to deal with escaping from a quote-unquote clingy friend. Oh, God. The baronet had...
1: <laughs> this is like, man, just don't believe anything anyone says. And obviously, if they say something like that, they're always wrong, you know?
0: The baronet had just gone through a humiliating divorce. Mm-hmm. His ex-wife, Sandra Boss had been the breadwinner in the marriage a harvest a harvard business school grad bringing in upwards of two million dollars a year working as a senior partner at a global management consulting firm he had gone from living in a four-story luxury townhome in boston with an estate in new hampshire to owning nothing living at gentlemen's clubs shunned from social circles where he was once the bell of the ball and relegated to these short supervised visits with his daughter. Is he doing this
1: fake English accent with his daughter? And now Uh
0: he was kidnapping her. Uh The baronet told the driver to pull over and to wait for him while he took his daughter to the hospital to get her head checked out. Then he would drive on to Rhode Island to have lunch with the son of a senator. The driver watched the baronet and his daughter get into a taxi and drive away and they never came back. Mm-hmm.
1: He's like, I'm gonna take my daughter into this hospital and just goes out of the car and then gets in a taxi and leaves.
0: Yeah. <laughs> After Bold, an Amber alert was issued, police went to the Four Seasons Hotel. Oh,
1: so the, the driver called it in. This The social worker did. Oh, the social worker. Oh, obviously, okay. Yeah. I guess that obviously that makes sense. Okay.
0: <laughs> After an ambler alert was issued, police went to the Four Seasons Hotel to speak with Sandra Boss, who was in a suite... Waiting for her daughter to complete the court mandated visitation with her father. Now that Ray had been kidnapped, investigators needed any information Sandra had about her ex husband that could help track him down. But as they questioned her, they found she knew absolutely nothing. He didn't have a driver's license, he didn't have a social security number never filed a tax return. He only used her credit cards. He never had one in his own name, never had a cell phone in his name. He literally had no identification papers to speak of. In fact, they had been married for about a decade. And for that entire time, her ass thought he was Clark Rockefeller of the (laughs) famous Rockefeller dynasty. Uh. But it turns out, That guy doesn't exist.
1: (laughs) So wait, hold on. I'm so sorry. She's finding that out now? The year
0: prior, Sandra, as like part of the divorce proceedings, had hired a private investigator to look into his past. But during the divorce proceedings, they negotiated a deal. Sandra agreed to stop any investigation into quote unquote Clark's past and pay him a one time $800,000 settlement and in exchange she got everything else all the marital properties all the money total custody of their daughter with Clark receiving three supervised eight hour visits a year. And then afterwards, she just picked up and moved to England with Ray. So as a part of the settlement, mm. she just agreed not to look into yeah, it. Yeah,
1: I was gonna say three supervised things a year. Yeah, because I was like, it would also seem like part of this during the whole court proceedings is the judge would be like, "You're obviously a scam artist with no paper trail whatsoever." He just said, don't "We could bat- never allow you to be with this child." But I guess three a year supervised. Yeah. Yeah.
0: She, he said, if you don't do anything, you can have everything. Uh huh. If you don't look into my past, yeah. you can have everything. Right. If Sandra had pressed on with investigating her ex-husband's past back in 2007, she would have found Clark Rockefeller had spent the last 30 years living under aliases such as Christopher Kenneth Gerhardt. Christopher Chichester, and Christopher C. Crone. He was known as a film producer, an art collector, a physicist, negotiator of international debt agreements, an English aristocrat, a hedge fund manager, just to name a few, and he was wanted for a 20-year-old double murder.
1: Oh, damn, here we go.
0: All right, so this whole mess started in West Germany. What we know (laughs) is our guy, (laughs) Started out as Christian Carl Gerhardt's writer. He was born in 1961 to a house painter and a stay-at-home mom, who I believe was also a seamstress. He was fairly small, short, thin, blonde, unremarkable. And in 1978, as a teenager, he met an American couple traveling in West Germany, Elmer and Jean Kellen. They did the thing where you say, come visit anytime. And Christian did. And the 17-year-old showed up unannounced. At their house in Connecticut just a few months later. It was super weird. He stayed for a few days. (laughs) They were like, all right, see, bye. Uh so he rode around and eventually found lodging with the Savio family in Connecticut after claiming to be a foreign exchange student. Mm -hmm. And by this time he had developed a whole persona. He, you know, he was the child of a wealthy German industrialist who worked with Mercedes and he wore white. Sunglasses and super tight Euro pants, and had long beachy hair. Uh, he ended up enrolling in the local high school and would just sleep on the Savio's couch. He apparently got really into Gilligan's Island at the time, specifically the Thurston Howell III character. So remember, that's like the super rich guy. <laughs>
1: that's who he based his whole fake persona on. So
0: the one with the ridiculous accent, is. right? That's so
1: classic. So he spent a ton classic. of time
0: mimicking that accent. Yeah. Like, Buffy, darling, get me my daughter. right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, years <laughs> later, his principal at the time, at the high school, still remembered that, just being like, what is this kid doing? Yeah. Eventually, the family kicked Gerhardt's writer out for just being ridiculous yeah he didn't clean he didn't help out he expected to have his meals and laundry waiting for him on demand and the last straw was one of the little kids came home and was locked out of the house in the winter in Connecticut and he was like lying on the couch and she was trying to get in and he just didn't feel like getting up so he just left this little kid like in the snow on the porch <laughs> and they were just like all right get out you can't live here anymore yeah just because he just was like i'm, oh, yeah. I'm rich
1: <laughs> i'm on my island yeah i have you have a question yes if you were a little kid and you were uh who do you which television character probably would have you know charted your path towards
0: from gilgan's island no
1: from any show it's got to be something from the simpsons for me i feel like it'd probably be like Someone making like the a fake queen or king from Simpsons would probably be what I would base my whole fake identity on, or maybe like uh, uh, the scientist or Doctor Nick or one of those people. They had big impacts on me.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I guess to, I think I I think like I just used to do dumb ones. Like I would think somebody was cool, like that I didn't get Joey
1: from Blossom.
0: No, I, I think mine would be stupid, like like Claire Danes from my so-called life. Like somebody angsty. Uh-huh. I think I would just be like that. I'm
1: going to be this person forever.
0: I don't think I understand your question.
1: I don't know if I have a clear question. I'm just saying this young kid like latched on to a character and was like, I'm going to pretend to be this forever. Yeah, right. It's so like, who was that? Or maybe, oh, that's probably the deeper question is we don't even know, but obviously we all have just like copied a television character from early on and pretended to be them for the rest of our life.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think you would pick Dr. Nick. I no. feel like what you're saying is strange, but
1: yeah, yeah. Your,
0: an- your answer to your own question I don't think is true.
1: Right, But
0: of course, because the
1: real answer to my question would probably be like, Joey from Blossom
0: no the real answer to your question is like Salvador Dali I mean I don't think <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you, you I know who you're pattering your life after it would be like
1: <laughs> just some be like, <laughs> magnificent genius yeah I mean
0: that's who you're uh-huh. gonna be like okay you know you're gonna be like I'm I'm a quirky artist okay <laughs> great great yeah.
1: okay so you're angsty Claire Danes
0: I don't know no I I think I think that I no I don't know what my answer would be okay yeah I don't think I do any. I don't think I think I just kind of Homer Simpson. You think I'm pattering my life after <laughs> Homer Simpson? Ugh. I hate all of it. Okay, Why okay. Are you my
1: sorry, sorry. Story? I th- really thought I was gonna. Of- it was, I, th- r- I honestly thought it was gonna be interesting. I really did. I genuinely thought this is a a fun, interesting little sidetrack.
0: Maybe it was. <laughs> Who knows? I'm trying to do this thing. Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) Great. All right. So after getting bounced from the Savio's house, Uh uh, our dude Christian changed his name to Christopher Kenneth Gerhardt and enrolled at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee where he briefly studied film. And there he talked a girl into hooking him up with the green card marriage, got his green card, and then headed to California. Mm -hmm. So he goes, Connecticut, Wisconsin, California. And now we come to the early 1980s in San Marino, mm, California. Mm. Our guy has now refined his Thurston Howell III into a lilting Queens English adjacent sort of accent. He's trimmed the hair. He's ditched the white sunglasses, and now he's going by Christopher Chichester.
1: He's got his business cards printed up hot off the presses. He
0: announces with beautifully embossed oversized calling cards <laughs> illustrated with what he told people was his family crest a heron and an eel declaring him the 13th baronet
1: it just looks like a denny's menu
0: (laughs) he was broke as a joke but he knew how to work it Chichester started ushering at the most well-heeled Episcopal church he could find in San Marino, charming the pants off the upper crusty old ladies. He ate the free lunches at the local social clubs. He spent his time at the beautiful free libraries reading. He hung out with the older set in their mansions being all cute and natty and charming, impressing everyone with his royal blood. Meanwhile, he's like driving a crappy Datsun with the inside filled with post-it notes to himself like a complete psychopath (laughs) he told everyone he was getting his mfa from in film from usc hinted that he even taught there occasionally he was deeply passionate about film noir and he may have audited classes but he was never enrolled in usc although he definitely knew how to get into parties and was like
1: Mm -hmm.
0: i guess like a figure there yeah then like we said, he had that public access show. They were like, oh, my God, you're amazing. You know, media, do the show. And he had all these, like, locally famous San Marinos on there, like the police chief at the mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. And this is how his relationship with Didi has started. Another older woman charmed by this young English royal. And, and more than likely, like we said, he never paid rent on that guest house. He never really paid for anything. And here as Christopher Chichester, he lived in the guest house. Linda and John Soas disappeared from the main house in February 1984, and then in July 1985, Chichester changed his name to Christopher Crow and left San Marino in John and Linda's pickup truck, never to return. Mm -hmm. All right, so this next section of his life is a little wild. I pieced it together from a few sources, but I believe In the end, he had three jobs over a period of three years in and around Connecticut. Now Christopher Crowe, our guy, moved to another blue-blood old-money enclave, the city of Greenwich, Connecticut, and he did the same song and dance. He dressed in Burberry jackets and monogram shirts and hung out in yacht clubs, acting like he belonged there, and this fool... Got an interview with a venture capitalist, like a famous one who was like training, like this really famous, like junk bond king. It's like mm-hmm. this very famous venture capitalist. Okay. Who told him, he got, like in the interview, he told this venture capitalist, Oh, hey, I'm a producer from Los Angeles who just did all the recent Alfred Hitchcock Presents remakes. And based on that interview, he got hired as a resident computer expert for a well-known Connecticut-based brokerage firm. (laughs) He he has no training (laughs) in computers whatsoever, no college uh education. uh But he
1: was just good about lying about working on a TV show. And
0: then also, like, he got hired for being a TV producer to do computers. Like, what is this world? And And he wasn't
1: even a TV producer. He lied about being a TV producer. You know what I mean?
0: And it went like surprisingly well. (laughs) You know, like he was like doing it. Uh And he wasn't getting in trouble or whatever until I guess they checked the social security number he gave them on his hiring paperwork. And oops, it was David Berkowitz's a.k.a. serial killer son of Sam's social security number. Just totally number.
1: randomly? I don't know. Like, out of all the numbers in the world, he, like, walked into that gin joint?
0: I mean, whatever it was, he put David Berkowitz's social security number on all of his hiring <laughs> people, like, and he, they fired him. They were like, who the hell is this guy? What What's happening? So, anyway, he got fired from that one. And then next, <laughs> again, without any experience or college degree... Uh-huh. He managed to talk a former Goldman Sachs executive who was like always known for being super horny for like anyone who presented as being really blue blood. Uh He talked this guy into hiring him as the sales manager uh, for corporate bonds for Nico Securities Limited with a starting salary of $150,000 a year. And that's around $420,000 in today's money. So like a fat salary. And apparently, he got hired, no references were checked, and as Christopher Crowe, he literally had no idea what he was doing. And this is according to our Vanity Fair article. This is just a quote from that. Quote, the staff he led was unimpressed. It was obvious he had no experience. He was hired as... <laughs> this is all... <laughs> Sorry, so funny. So, quote, he was hired as sales manager of corporate bonds, but he had never sold a corporate bond, said Richard... Barnett who was hired by Crow as uh-huh. Nico's director of corporate bond research quote he had no idea what he was doing <laughs> Yeah 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 <laughs> So that was actually a complete garbage fire and this time Christopher Crow was fired just for straight-up incompetence rather than for using a serial killer social security number.
1: Okay. Hey, man, that's that's a step in the right direction.
0: Wild!
1: You know? Good for him. At least he's getting better at something.
0: His final position was for the distinguished Wall Street securities firm, Kidder Peabody & Company. But this time, by his time there was short-lived because... Christopher Crowe had made a big mistake a few months earlier. In the summer of 1988, someone had tried to sell John and Linda Sohus' truck in Greenwich, Connecticut, to some nice people at the Episcopal Church. Mm -hmm. And that set off some interstate alarms and some crime databases. And by November 1988, investigators working the Sohus' disappearance made their way to Connecticut to check some things out. Investigators found, strangely enough, a hedge fund manager named Chris Crow had sold the couple the truck. They're like, how did they get the truck, right? So they tracked Chris Crow all the way to his new job at the securities firm on Wall Street, only to find he'd abruptly taken a leave of absence right before (laughs) their scheduled interview. He
1: stripped down his clothes, rubbed a bunch of dirt on him, and left
0: apparently Chris Crow's parents had tragically been kidnapped in Pakistan oh my God. and he was on the first flight <laughs> mm-hmm. out of the country on a mission to rescue them and had taken an indefinite leave of absence and that was that he was gone
1: what I wonder did, was he I wonder if did he realize selling that truck was a bad idea no probably just selling the truck was he needed the money and he was gonna leave regardless. It ended up being like a stroke of luck that he left right after he sold the truck. But they probably weren't connected.
0: No, he sold the truck in the summer. And then in the fall, he right. got a call saying, hey, um, we heard you sold this truck. We're like investigating this connection to a missing persons case. Can we interview you? Oh,
1: okay. So they actually did ask him. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, and okay, then okay, he was okay.
0: like, oh, sounds great. Okay, sure, sure. And then they got there and said, like, his Pakistan. parents are in mm-hmm. Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But one brilliant thing that came out of this situation, the sort of, in some ways, the linchpin to the whole case is that in the process of registering for his position in this last job, Chris Crow, a.k.a. Christopher Chichester, a.k.a. Christian Gerhardt's writer, had to provide his fingerprints to the U.S. Securities and Exchange. And investigators were able to connect the fingerprints they had in file for both Christopher Chichester and Christian Gerhardt's writer, confirming that those three men were one person. And they were able to take that set of fingerprints mm-hmm. and register them in a national database and then flagging this mystery man as a person of interest in the SOAS case. Gotcha. So that was very incredibly helpful in a sure. strange way, right? Yeah, yeah. After this, though, the Soas case once again went cold and Frico went on the run for something like six years. While we lose track of our shapeshifter for a while, time moves on. By 1994, Dee Dee had sold her house and passed away, and John and Linda had been missing for almost a decade. In May of 1994, the new owners of Dee Dee's home decided to put in a swimming pool, and in the process of digging, they found a pile of human bones the bones of a 27 year old male dressed in a flannel and blue jeans basically pretty much john soas's uniform the skull indicated the victim died of blunt force trauma to the head and the closing indicated multiple stab wounds the body had been cut into three pieces and the skull had been wrapped in two plastic bags one from the bookstore at the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee, and one from the bookstore at University of California. Mm. University of Southern California.
1: Right, USC, right. RIP.
0: Investigators used luminol, then, to check the guest house for blood for the first time in 10 years, and found four large pools of blood with wiping details etched in, indicating an attempt to clean. Mm. And then everybody started remembering things. Mm. One neighbor came forward to say at the time of John and Linda's disappearance, Chichester uncharacteristically borrowed a chainsaw from him. Another neighbor <laughs> was like, come on guys. Nobody yeah. said anything. Right. Another neighbor said, Oh yeah. And I also saw him burning stuff in the backyard at odd hours. Um, and friends came forward to say like right after John and Linda disappeared, chichester hosted this big backyard game of trivial pursuit and they remember the yard had all of these freshly dug up holes in it and they were like what's up with your yard and chichester was like oh we're having like a nightmare with the plumbing and they they were like Uh now they were like oh
1: so yeah okay and there's no linda's body yet it's just no okay r.i.p
0: but even with this explosive evidence, there were these big problems. One, there was no forensic evidence linking the baronet to the crime. There was no fingerprints, hair evidence. Like there was nothing that was actually, you know, in the bag. It was just too old, you know, like there was nothing, fingernail scrapings or anything like that yeah. that would link the baronet to sure. know, whatever. And two, John was adopted. And he had no dental records. So there was no way through DNA to fully identify him, like to positively identify him. They had bones, but Mm -hmm. they actually couldn't say it was John. Hmm. So once again, the case remained cold. Meanwhile, Frico is out there marinating in his juices and developing into his final opus, Clark Rockefeller. Clark was from some, Clark, quote unquote, was from some distant Branch of Rockefeller, not John D., more like second cousin Percy or whatever, but still rich though, right? Uh For this, he needed some cash, not a life-threatening, like a life-threatening, not a life-changing amount, but a fair chunk of change. No one knows exactly how he got it, but he did manage to get enough to pull off his scam so he got the right clothes he got a nice apartment on the upper east side of manhattan he got a designer dog and he got some play money and he joined the most exclusive episcopalian church he could find in the 90s in the in the early 90s clark rockefeller developed a relationship with his next door neighbor, a high-end art dealer named Martha Henry. And here's an excerpt from Vanity Fair. Quote, he told her about his parents' death in a car accident when he was 16, just before he went off to Harvard. She also learned that he never ate in restaurants because you can't trust the kitchen, that his diet consisted mainly of cucumber and watercress tea sandwiches, only on Pepperidge Farm bread with the crusts removed <laughs> and Pepperidge Farm cookies, preferably the Nantucket variety. Were those
1: fancy back then? I mean, I, they're still kind of fancy now, but was that like good? And Okay, sorry. I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah.
0: That his favorite food was haggis, the Scottish dish, and his drink of choice was Harvey's Bristol Cream Sherry. She said, you just think, oh, well, he's a Rockefeller. He's eccentric. <laughs>
1: He eats garbage. Isn't haggis also, like, I've never had it, but isn't that, it's famous for not smelling good, right?
0: It's intestines. I mean, I think Uh people, uh, people just don't like intestines, Uh you know? It's, like, notorious for people. Sure. I think if you, I think it's an acquired taste for some. Right. And sometimes, if it's not boiled correctly, it can be stinky, but I don't think it's always stinky. It's just funny that it's, like, haggis
1: and then cucumber sandwiches on white bread
0: it's like dada it's like rich people dada sure it, yeah know? he's just yeah. eccentric yeah okay okay uh one day clark called martha up right and he's like oh i've got a headache can you come over and help appraise like this boatload of paintings you know he says that he just inherited this boatload of paintings from his from his aunt and he had mm-hmm. no idea what to do with them you know his aunt meaning blanchette rockefeller okay the twice president Uh, the Museum of Modern Art. Okay. Oh, (laughs) she
1: gave me a... There's a yacht full of paintings.
0: Yeah, he's like, my my aunt gave me these paintings. You know, the one who started the little museum down on like 54th or whatever. (laughs) So... He's on the phone. He's rattling off these names of these artists. He's mispronouncing them. He's Uh bored. You know, he's like, I don't know, Jackson, (laughs) Polak, Rothko, Mondrian, Twombly or something like that. I don't know. So Martha runs over (laughs) to the apartment and she finds in her estimation like tens of millions of dollars worth of modern art just like lying around. Oh, really? Clark's living room. Yeah.
1: Like real art.
0: Like insane. Oh, they're all fakes. Oh, they're all fakes. Okay. <laughs> uh, but nobody knew. Uh huh. They didn't. Nobody knew until like, ever. Okay. Like he like whatever, right? So, at this moment, it cemented Clark. Rockefeller's authenticity Mm. it was like oh of course he knew that's his aunt yeah the paintings make sense (laughs) everybody thought they were real (laughs) and like it it totally like cemented everything and it launched him into like the upper stratosphere of this Manhattan social scene at the time like it cemented everything and then they were like oh yeah and he's obviously a bajillionaire right right and this is how he met his future wife Sandra Boss. Mm -hmm. So Clark Rockefeller met Sandra's twin sister Julia at the St. Thomas Church in 1995. You know Julia was impressed with him and offered to introduce Clark to her sister and for their first date Clark arranged this like elaborate um, costume party based on the board game Clue and he came as Professor Plum was a harvard man with a mysterious past and sandra came as miss scarlet who was a scarlet uh, hollywood actress who wanted to marry rich Mm. and uh sandra was like a really attractive wildly intelligent overachiever so she graduated from stanford before getting her mba at harvard and after graduating, she worked at Merrill Lynch and then she got a job at McKinsey and Company and that's a global management consulting company that's like a really, really big deal. It's the largest and oldest management consulting firm in the world. Uh, according to Wikipedia, it's considered also one of the most selective employers in the world. So like we're talking about like Illuminati, blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. They're like had their hands in the opioid crisis. Sure, sure. And, like, you know, I mean, they uh-huh. like they're they're like, crazy Star Wars something, something. Uh, like sure, sure. I get it. Yeah, yeah. The, the ones, right? Yeah. And Sandra Boss, like, crushed it at McKinsey. Um, at the time she met Clark Rockefeller, she had just joined the firm, and she was pulling in, like, a little over a million dollars a year. And by the time of their divorce, Sandy would be a senior partner at McKinsey. She was just a big... Deal boss bitch. Like- I
1: love this. This is so interesting, and I'm not gonna edit it out and I'm not gonna ask you to retake it. I think this is all happening while a garbage truck is outside of our window. Okay, that's it's it's great. It's just hilarious just to be like to talk about that world while this is our apartment. <laughs>
0: I know Bingus hates the
1: garbage truck. Our cat. Okay, we did have to stop and actually let it do its business for the last five minutes. But now now we continue. No more disruptions. Me, garbage truck, anyone.
0: (laughs) Anyway, some people say Sandra may have been a little awkward. You know, Mm -hmm. she was not having a hot time on the dating scene. But in Clark Rockefeller, she found her person. She said he was brilliant spoke a bunch of languages, was fluent in Klingon (laughs) from Star Trek, which she was super into. Okay. Well-read, Ivy League-educated. As he told it, his mother and father were tragically killed in a car crash when he was a teenager. Every source I've read has a slightly different story regarding how he explained his money situation, which makes sense to me because he's basically making right. it up, right? He's got
1: to check his post-it notes inside that Dotson yeah, right. to see which lie he told the what person.
0: Right. So I don't know. I, I don't think it really matters. Sure. I think he said he grew up rich, but his family fortune was wiped out by a lawsuit But maybe any day now, his family money would be restored. It was very opaque. You know, I think there was the promise that money would come through. Mm -hmm. And then it's, you know, that he had these assets, right? You know, these paintings that were worth tens of millions of dollars and other things. So it's kind of hard to tell what was going on. But his money was somehow tied up. Sure. So he wasn't bringing in anything. Yeah.
1: So he can't pick up the check at the Burger King. Yeah, right.
0: Um, He said he had a job, he worked helping consult with the governments of developing nations on debt management through his company Asterisk LLP. And he said he didn't make any profit on this because they were just so dirt poor that it, it was unconscionable to charge any sort of consulting fee. It was purely just a labor of love and an act of service for his fellow man. In reality, it was a fake job that he made up that wasn't Mm -hmm. real, right? But Sandra fell in love with his altruism. Fine. She found it very refreshing that he was not materialistic. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Bummer. Uh, Friends found them to be kind of similar in their personalities. Stiff, formal, awkward, (laughs) distant. Uh, Everything chalked up to being like, Quirks of the ultra wealthy.
1: I love the idea of him speaking fake Klingon and her being like nervous to say, I actually don't speak Klingon. So she's just also pretending to speak Klingon (laughs) and it's just two people speaking fake Klingon to each other. I just think that would be so funny.
0: They also had a lot of, they did a lot of like Rockefeller central, like centric things, Uh which I just thought was kind of funny. They always invited people out to dinner. And when they had dinner, it was always at some members-only club that Clark belonged to. And friends said, you know, it was really convincing because when they signed in to these exclusive clubs to have dinner in the register, Clark would just sign right underneath, you know, billionaire Lawrence Rockefeller's name. You know, on the register, they Mm -hmm. were alphabetically right next to each other, so it felt very legitimate. Um, One friend who spoke to Vanity Fair said that one time they were out at one of the clubs and they had a really spectacular view of the skyline and Rockefeller Center was there and they pointed it out to Clark. And it was like, oh, hey, the Rockefeller Center. Yeah. And Clark just smiled at the table, reached in his pocket and pulled out a single key and said, yes, I have the key right here. <laughs> <laughs> and the friend was like, oh, no this guy's nuts. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, <laughs> There's yeah. There's yeah, yeah. not
0: like a single key to the Rockefeller Center. And that was the first time they didn't say anything, but they they definitely were just, uh, uh-huh. you know, a little bit sort of, okay, I'm going to put my distance between yeah, us. Yeah, right. You know, it was very much like they maybe weren't a super fun couple, but uh-huh. they were just so extravagant that it was always fun to go out with them. Sure. But these kinds of things would crop up and people would it makes them nervous, you know? <laughs> it's doing- funny
1: if the narrative was, yeah, I think like one of the real Rockefellers just gave their like stupid cousin a key to the janitor's closet and said like, welcome to the family.
0: People definitely, it felt incredibly convincing, especially with uh-huh. the art collection. Uh-huh. It just felt incredibly convincing, but it definitely just felt so weird
1: well i know a lot of that has come up in recent years in the surface of just how many people have been fooled by fake art over yeah. the years and this class of person or whatever you want to call them is like very susceptible to that yeah. particular lie well they
0: have the money to buy it also it's and like the they only need, need who... it
1: to be real yeah. like on i'm saying they need it now i'm being dumb again like i was about the rolling stones but whatever it's like they're it's just they've been getting tricked
0: well, they're the only people who can buy it. Right. Who, who's going to buy a Rothko? I mean, it's it's not yeah, yeah. that fair. I mean, they're the You're only sure. people purchasing it. Right, right, right. We're not buying that shit. All right. So I believe they were married in sometime in 1995. Uh-huh. Park promised some... A heavy Rockefeller presence at the wedding. Okay. But (laughs) no one showed up. At the wedding, he said, oh, they had some sort of issue that forced him to disinvite his famous relatives at the last minute. Oh, wow. Don't worry. You'll meet them in the future, I promise. Very good. Clark chose a Quaker meeting house for the ceremony on Nantucket Island. Nothing about the ceremony was technically binding. Sandra filled out their legal, like, marriage paperwork and then gave it to Clark to file. Clark never filed anything. Mm -hmm. And this type of behavior extended to other things. For instance, Clark took over doing Sandra's taxes, right? So first he was instructing her to file as single, not married. And then when they really needed to hire an accountant, he wouldn't let Sandra choose her own accountant and wouldn't let Sandra communicate with the accountant Mm -hmm. and when sandra finally did communicate with the accountant she had found that clark had told the accountant that he was her brother all in an effort to like force her to file as a single person Mm -hmm. and completely hide all of his personal information from her right which uh i'm i'm assuming she wrote off as some sort of eccentricity uh-huh. you know as a way of like the ultra wealthy or maybe like so private about their wealth that, he, <laughs> he was the
1: that we pretend to be brother and sister I guess yeah uh,
0: but he got controlling and increasing in various ways he completely took over their finances even though it was all of Sandra's money and he wasn't contributing anything and uh, he got paranoid and mean in early 2000 Sandra had enough Clark was starting to get abusive And she left for a brief period, but Clark was able to not be an asshole just long enough to win Sandra back. And they conceived a child together. So Sandra decided to stay and make it work. And Clark, in turn, got into some sort of huge fight with some lady at Central Park, came home, and angrily announced that they were all moving to freaking New Hampshire. And they did. Randall's there was like, never
1: any details if it was just like a random lady. In it was Central a random Port- lady. Just completely random. And it was
0: bad enough that the cops came to their house and he didn't get arrested, but uh-huh. it was some sort of argument. And oh God. That's all it was that I could find. Mm-hmm. And so begins the brief period where for some reason, Clark Rockefeller decided to be the scourge of Cornish, New Hampshire. By now he had forgotten the debt management of the global communities less fortunate and was busy telling people he was a scientist who had a jet propulsion lab in Canada. Sandra Boss, by now, was super pregnant and had just made partner at McKinsey. She dropped three-quarters of a million dollars on a 25-acre estate called Dove Ridge and went back to work while Clark tore it apart, making extravagant renovations and adding a swimming pool. Clark used the extensive grounds to display his 21-car collection, but... He didn't actually know how to drive. And so was seen around town, either chauffeured in his armored Cadillac or zipping around on his Segway wearing an Ascot and a Yale baseball cap.
1: Wait, a minute, he had 20. So he's just spending. He bought money. 21 cars that he can't drive.
0: Yes. That would be correct.
1: <laughs> Insane. Did they sell any of these paintings? Were they making money on the fake paintings? Or no. that, that was still just cultural collateral? They
0: were buying more paintings okay like to celebrate their marriage they bought uh-huh. a giant Rothko, and then she wrote about it in like an, an op-ed in like the newspaper about their new rothco and how their <laughs> dog got dog spit on it <laughs> <It's> very, <laughs> we don't know we don't know this life yeah right all right yeah he had it he would like put the cars out and be like oh my cars and then he'd just like get chauffeured around and like
1: <laughs> right it's segway what are you saying segway segways existed back then
0: i mean this is 2001.
1: Oh, this is 2001. Of or like course. like 2000. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. That's hilarious.
0: Ascot, Segway, Yeah, this little cap. that's the only <laughs> way he can get himself around. I think that that's amazing.
1: It definitely is. Uh,
0: by most accounts, Clark, Ro- Clark Rockefeller did not have many fans in Cornish, New Hampshire, mm-hmm. mainly because he kept telling everyone he was a Rockefeller and bragging about how much money he had and Also, like, bragging about having, oh, Stephen Hawking is coming over for dinner tonight. Things like that. Uh, Sandra gave birth to their daughter, Ray Staro Mills Boss, in May 2001. And they stayed put in New Hampshire with Clark taking on the role of stay-at-home dad. Ray was really bright, and Clark fostered that by homeschooling her at a very young age. She was reading and writing by the age of three. But... Clark still found all kinds of time to terrorize people. He got into a years-long feud with a state senator and his wife in the town over, I couldn't figure out what He Uh got really mad about something. Uh (laughs) And that culminated in uh, Clark buying both an antique fire truck and a historical church completely out of spite. Uh, He also organized and put on a like Greek play for the town and cast himself in the lead. And he would just spend his time spamming the local newsletter with op-ed, like opinion articles, Uh (laughs) kind of like talking trash. (laughs) One of which was like just a plagiarized article from uh, a Michael Crichton piece, like the guy who wrote Jurassic Park. Right, (laughs) right. He was just like, they were like, why are you like the way you are? Uh, Eventually though... Ray got old enough to need real school. Uh, Sandra was promoted to senior partner at McKinsey. And it was just time to get their five-year-old daughter into one of the fancy private girls', yeah, she, girls schools in Boston. She started making
1: connections. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, and that was where Sandra was working full-time. So they left New Hampshire with the renovations on their estate still unfinished and the church standing empty, just the Spite Church <laughs> there. <laughs> In 2006, Sandra bought a 2.7 million four-floor townhome on the same street as Senator John Kerry in Boston. Clark told his friends at the Starbucks that he sold his Canadian jet engine company to Boeing for a billion dollars. And he was now a man of leisure while his poor wife, Sandy, was slaving away for just $300,000 a year. Mm. Uh, Clark said he was mulling over maybe donating a planetarium to their daughter's elementary school. (laughs) 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 Uh,
1: It's just so... I mean, just basically be like, oh, really? What was the name of the company? In 2006, you could look it up.
0: I mean, there's a lot of stuff I can't believe people were not Googling. I guess that's just not the way of the world in that world. Anyway... Boston was the end of the road for old Clark Rockefeller. The bloom was off the rose and Sandra left him sometime around 2007. Sandy moved into the Boston Ritz while Clark, totally blindsided and even more tragically cut off from Sandy's money, moved in with friends. He was stuck with the mortifying task of attempting to sell off his car collection, unload his art collection to his rich friends, desperate telling everyone Sandy left him and bled his fortune dry. So it sounds like at this point, Clark was making all this noise, right? Mm-hmm. And so Sandy's dad decided to do something totally radical. He decided to Google Clark Rockefeller. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking like, why is this guy acting like he has no money? Yeah. By the way, oops. How did she not Google him yet? I hate to shame. And you know, I she's a genius, right? Yeah, right. But man, she hadn't met a single Rockefeller in like ten years, right? And her daughter hadn't met any Rockefellers. I'm like, no
1: grandparents, no grandparents.
0: Up. I mean, he said his parents were dead, but like no uncles. Yeah, you know? right. So Mr. Boss, he starts poking around, and you know he he looks up Clark Rockefeller's parents. Right, his late mother was supposedly Ann Carter, a a former American child star. Easy to Google mm. has a Wikipedia page and uh, this woman, Clark, said, died in a, a car wreck, right? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, looks up Ann Carter, not his mother. Also, she wasn't dead.
1: <laughs> of course, of course.
0: And the deeper Mr. Boss dug, the more inconsistencies he found, and also absolutely nothing about this Clark Rockefeller himself. It's mm-hmm. almost as if he doesn't exist, right? <laughs> so horrified, Dad reported everything back to Sandra. And based on this, Sandra decided to hire this private investigator to find out who she was married to this whole time. But somewhere in this, the investigation into Clark's past never really materialized. Instead, Clark gave up all his rights to his daughter and any marital property in exchange for this large payout and no investigation into mm-hmm. his identity. Mm-hmm. After his divorce, Clark just got weirder and weirder. He had enough money to live his high life dining and private clubs and living in luxury hotels, at least for a little while, but he was unglued and you know, he, he was, he didn't have the charm, right. That like was landing him these crazy jobs. You know, he just didn't have that anymore.
1: Times have changed, you know?
0: Yeah. He was trying to get, you know, with new women making up new, more complicated personas. You know, he's a nuclear physicist, and a single dad who rides submarines, but he just came off as creepy and lying (laughs) dude. He didn't get any traction. Uh, And as per their custody agreement, Clark only got three supervised visits with his daughter a year. So by July 2008, he had fully completed his plan to kidnap her. On July 27th, 2008, after escaping the social worker in his black SUV limo and then switching to taxi clark took his daughter via taxi to a marina where a clueless friend was waiting for them completely unaware of the situation this friend drove the pair to grand central station in manhattan dropping them off just as her cell phone lit up with an amber amber alert for ray wow from there clark and ray took a train to long island and then a boat to wherever Back at the Four Seasons in Boston, Sandra and the investigators had no idea where Clark could have taken their daughter. When speaking to mutual friends, they found he had told different stories to everyone that he was going to the Bahamas, to Alaska, Peru, wherever. But they did catch a break when one of these friends mentioned having a dirty wine glass Clark had touched from the night before investigators lifted clark's prints from the wine glass and fingers crossed ran it through some national databases (laughs) worked with the fbi and they got a hit on a 22 year old unsolved murder case in california yeah and from there police were able to release his old photos all his old aliases old stomping grounds anything that could help them make a connection and all of this paid off a few days later A call came into the FBI. A woman said she had just sold an apartment in Baltimore, Maryland to a man named Chip Smith for $432,000. He paid the entire thing in cashier's checks and moved in with his young daughter, Muffy. And she said he, he said he was a single dad from Chile and the captain of a ship.
1: Okay. Gilligan's Island.
0: (laughs) The FBI hustled on down to Baltimore. They knew Chip had a boat moored at the local marina, so they had someone working at the marina call Chip to tell him, hey, man, your boat's sinking. (laughs) So Chip ran down to the marina to check on his boat. An FBI agent yelled out, hey, Clark, where are you going, Clark? And this man turned around and yelled back, I'm going to get a turkey sandwich. (laughs) And then immediately got tackled by about 20 FBI agents with guns.
1: Oh my God.
0: Authorities were able to determine Clark Rockefeller's real identity was the German one. And in 2009, Christian Karl Gerhardt's writer was convicted of custodial kidnapping and assaulting the social worker and sentenced to four to five years in prison. During the trial, Gerhardt's writer claimed his daughter had been communicating with him telepathically from London, requesting to be rescued. Okay. Two years later, after using the DNA of a recently discovered half-sibling, investigators were finally able to positively identify the remains of John Soas and charge Gerhardt's writer with his murder. Mm. The case was largely circumstantial. Prosecutors believe Gerhardt's writer's motivation was money. John and Linda were threatening his lifestyle, maybe making it harder to control Dee Dee. Sure. Or keep, you know, Gerhardt's writer's control over the guest house. The couple pretty blatantly wanted to take over the guest house themselves, and maybe like there were some tensions rising about that. Also, after John Soas disappeared, apparently believing she'd been abandoned by her son. Dee Dee Soas actually wrote John out of her will. So prosecutors say they believe Gerhardt's writer, who had become heavily entangled in Dee Dee's life, was planning on manipulating Dee Dee to write him into the will instead, yeah. leaving him her high six figure estate. Sure. But Dee Dee never left anything to Gerhardt's writer. And eventually, Gerhardt's writer just picked up and left. The most convincing evidence in the trial just ended up being the plastic bags used to wrap up John's skull, the bags from the college bookstores, one from the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee and one from USC. Gerhardt's writer was pretty much the only person in San Marino who had actually studied at both of those campuses. Mm -hmm. And that combined with Gerhardt's writer tooling around in the couple's pickup truck for years painted a pretty convincing picture for the jury. The defense just took the position that Linda murdered John and then ran away to France to live a wonderful life. Not a pretty, it was not yeah. a pretty weak sort of like yeah. uh, explanation. Mm. Uh, she didn't have a passport and there was just like absolutely no motive. And she
1: never showed up again. She's never no, been seen or heard, heard of. She's never been seen or heard of again. Wow. Yeah. Oh my God.
0: Gerhertz writer was convicted of first degree murder and the death of John Seuss. Oh, really?
1: That was enough to convict him. Yeah. Hmm.
0: In April 2013 and sentenced to 27 years to life. Linda's body was never found and she wow. was never seen or heard from again.
1: Well, I hope she survived. I mean, I hope she didn't get murdered.
0: I think that yeah, she me probably.
1: Too. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. RIP or live in peace. Whatever. Yeah. Linda. Yeah.
0: He Christian Carl Gerhardt's writer denies any like wrongdoing mm-hmm. to this day. In
1: any category? I Not pretty even pretty much. I like, mean he
0: also is like I don't even know to this point if he admits that he's Christian Carl Gerhardt's writer. Uh-huh, he's uh-huh. like pretty much just
1: Yeah, he's communicating telepathically. He's doing all types of things. Yeah. He's yeah.
0: currently serving his sentence at San Quentin in California. And that's the end. Uh,
1: <laughs> I want to I'm sure there's got to be cases out there. I want to send a APV out to our listeners. There's got to be people that you know after they've retired or whatever from like crazy interesting like wealthy lifestyles are just like yeah I lied my way into this like I came up with a fake identity I did the fake accent I had the fake business cards to get myself into this society and I jumped the line to like get these jobs because people just thought I was impressive and fancy and then once I got that I was just chill and made a bunch of money and like supported my family you know what I mean
0: oh yeah
1: but I want to know those stories. There's got to be some that are super famous. Like, oh, yeah, what's his name from blah, blah, blah. That's his story or something. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Because yeah. it's just like you can be a scam artist.
0: And do good in the world? Yeah. You oh, know yeah. what I mean? You just want a positive scam story?
1: Yeah, I want a positive scam story. Okay. And even if the positivity is just personal enrichment, but you didn't also then just like lie and steal and... You know, marry rich and bleed all the money dry. You know what I'm saying? Like someone who lied their way into some sort of impressive job, and then was just cool and good at and good at that job. You know what I'm saying?
0: You have such a nice heart. You're just such a
1: sweetheart. No, Mm -mm. don't trust me. I trust you, You even if you roll your windows up at me (laughs) sometimes. Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. She did all the research. She did all the writing. She even told you guys the research she didn't do for this pod. I mean, what other podcaster (laughs) that makes no money at this job? I know we make some money and we love thank you guys you. and and yeah and the way we make money is when you sign up for our patreon or through our Spotify feed we don't get the names of the people that sign up through Spotify that's why we really do take the time to thank all of our patreon members but we can't thank those that sign up on Spotify but just know we love you uh, those links are in the show notes you kick us five bucks we get you a bunch of exclusive episodes plus you get the the warm sensation of supporting the show yeah Mario.
0: <laughs> I was just going to say, just what? like, be in your pants.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mario Castellini did our music. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. We've got contact information in our show notes. Leave us those reviews. Lord knows we love them. Um,
0: That's it, man. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. You
0: know, we appreciate everything you do. And so, um, yeah. you know, have a great
1: day. Take we'll care of you yourself. week, man. Yeah, for sure. Take, Take care, care of yourself. yourself and each other. R.I.P. Jerry Springer. Peace.